0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church Podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. James chapter 1. We're working our way through the book of James. This is our sixth sermon in chapter 1. We still have four more to go, just in chapter 1. So we're going nice and slow through this book. Just trying to squeeze out every bit of nourishment and encouragement And grace that we can from God's Word here. Um, And uh, many New Testament scholars believe that perhaps James was perhaps the first book written in the New Testament. It's hard to say for sure, but it's certainly one of the first ones written by James, the brother of Jesus. And when you think about just how difficult the first century is and how difficult uh, Christianity, the, the opposition and persecution that Christianity faced in that first century under the Roman uh, under Roman rule and by their Jewish uh, uh, Jewish persecutors, there was just a lot of challenges that are happening to Christians from the very outset. And so um, it, it, I think that's reflected in the book because the very first theme that James talks about is trials, trials, suffering, pain. And uh, and one of the greatest challenges to Christianity is the prom- problem of evil and pain. I think I have a slide up here. of This is just a classic way to put this uh, problem that uh, theologians, philosophers, Christians have been wrestling with for a long time. And I think this first chapter of the book of James tells us that this, is not a new, this is not a new experience. That if God is, and this is how it goes, if God exists, especially as the Bible presents Him, then He is perfectly good and all-powerful, right? So those two things are, are true. That's what the Christian God, um, that's what the Bible holds out that God is. That He exists, He's perfectly good and all-powerful, and therefore, if God is perfectly good then God has the desire to eliminate evil. If He really is perfectly good, then He really is at war with evil. And if God is all-powerful, then He certainly has the power to eliminate all evil. But then we're left with a problem. Evil exists. We know that unjust, awful, painful, evil things exist. So, this is sort of how the critic of the Christian God would approach this. This is the temptation that we're all faced to... or uh, all tempted to conclude is that so either God either doesn't have the power to eliminate all evil, or he doesn't have the desire, he's not all good, He's got some ulterior motives, or perhaps he doesn't exist at all. This is often called the problem of evil or the problem of pain. And uh, this is this is just maybe maybe the most challenging um, problem that Christianity faced, the most the most legitimate challenge, Uh, to this is because you do the math on those things and you go, yeah, our experience in the world that we witness around us and even our own pain, it doesn't seem like God is as good as he seems or is as powerful. Like something's got to give. There's this challenge and pressure. And I think from this, if if James really is the first letter written, then we, we can assume that this is not a new problem. That the problem of trials and pain, like if our God really is Bringing, and, uh, bringing a new kingdom, and Christ has died and rose again, then why is life so hard? Why is there evil in the world? If he's so good and he's so powerful, then why evil? Uh, the Christian defenses, and there's many, there's many uh, defenses to this, many things that people have thought of on how, how this problem gets resolved, uh, that it's called theodicy. So there you go, you learned your big word for the day, theodicy. Theodicy is a, an attempt to reconcile this problem. This problem of how can a good and all-powerful God uh, be uh, consistent with the fact that so much evil, pain, and suffering exists in the world? And I think James 1 is, in some sense, offering an answer to that question. I think it is a theodicy. How are Christians, if they believe these things about God, they believe that God has sent His Son in Christ to come and destroy the powers of evil and rise again, how are we to view this? Like, How does the Christian respond to the problem of evil? And uh, and he has a pretty bold start when you look at James chapter 1 verse 2 count it all joy my brothers when you face trials of various kinds. That's a pretty audacious theodicy, right? Is when the problem of pain and evil and trials encounter the Christian, they actually see somehow see God's goodness and power even through those things. Um, even in those things. And that's a very hard pill to swallow. It's nice and easy this is easy if we just keep this at the theoretical level, but this is not so easy if, um, if life is horrible and painful, right? So I know that as we discuss this, and many of you have talked with me about this, that this is not an easy chapter for us to walk through, especially if you've got some sort of pain, if you've experienced a tragic loss, if you, you see the evil around you. In some ways, James 1 can feel a little bit like, a, like opening up a wound. Uh, but let's, let's assume, let's give Gen- James the benefit of the doubt here. When it comes to this uh, this call, and as we get to verses 16 through 18, we're completing that first section in the book of James, and he's going to give kind of his punchline, like how is it that we deal with trials and pain and evil? How how are we to navigate those things and reconcile this question? So I want to be careful as we go through this for a couple of reasons. For one, I'm not an expert on all the arguments about the problem of pain and the problem of evil. It's just not an easy question to try to bring satisfaction to. Secondly, one sermon from three verses is really not sufficient to address all of the challenges. And thirdly, um, this isn't just philosophical, like I've already said. This This is real life for many of us. This problem of like, how do I reconcile this death that I've experienced, this diagnosis, this tragic event, world events? How do I reconcile this with what the Bible says about God? So I want to tread carefully here, but I do think that the Bible gives us some comfort, gives us a theodicy, gives us a resolution to the problem of evil. And I think it's important for us to remember that the Bible is not written in a vacuum. Like sometimes we just sort of read it as if it's sort of disconnected from real life. But James knows pain. James knows evil. James knows the challenges that are that are being faced and the reason he's writing to these christians that are scattered around is because they know pain they know that that christianity is at dissonance with the world like this fact that we're following a ruling and reigning savior and yet we're at the bottom of the food chain we're being mistreated like where is our great god and why is this evil happening we need to remember that james is not written in a vacuum he's experienced this pain the people he's writing to have experienced pain and he is writing because he really does think that the words he's going to share to them are, is going to help them. It really is going to help them endure trials and suffering and be able to navigate these issues. So as we think about this, I want us to kind of have this idea, this, this problem of pain, this problem of evil, um, where does it give? Like, what is the resolution to this? And I think we can find at least one of, of perhaps many answers in just our few verses today. James 1, 16 through 18. Here's what he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, in the midst of temptation and trials, you're going to be tempted to believe lies, here you go, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. I just want to take just a moment to pray, if you don't mind, God, we ask you, Uh, to speak to our hearts from this text. And God, as we think about the context of this passage and the challenge and pain of living in this world and how that reconciles with your goodness and your grace and your commitment to eradicate evil, Lord, as we live in sort of that between time, the already and the not yet of your kingdom, we pray that you would help us to not buy into lies about your character, to not buy into lies about how you're working in the world, and Lord, help us in these just these few verses to settle our hearts and our minds firmly on who you are and what you have done, uh, that we might be uh, a testimony to the world, uh, that our good God does exist, and he is working. And so, Lord, we pray for your help in, uh, in understanding and grasping and applying these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we have this call to not be deceived, my beloved brothers, by t- trials and temptations, to not buy into these challenges. Um, to uh, who God is in light of all the difficulties in the world. And so what I want to do is is just spend some time in verse 17 and pull out some threads, some truths that James gives us, and then we'll spend the second half of our time just in verse 18. So there's a whole lot compressed. Like this is so much truth compressed down into like the most succinct words. So I just want to kind of unpack those a bit because I think it answers this question um, of why and how to respond to the fact that uh, life can be hard. So first of all, the very first phrase in chapter or in verse 17 is this, every good and perfect gift is from above. And so James is affirming with, with great intensity that God is perfectly good and is the source of every good. So that part is right, he says. God does exist and He is good. He is perfectly good and actually He's the source of all good. Which means that even the good we do to one another is, is stuff that God has put in our pocket, right? It's like my kids when they uh, want to buy me a birthday present, they got to ask me for money first to buy my own birthday present. So any good that you see in the world, any good that is experienced or transacted between people, all of that comes from God. God is the source of all good because He is good. He is good perfectly. He is, he is the source of every good and perfect gift. It's from Him. It's from above. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you find that he creates this world and he again and again renders this verdict of good, good, good. Every single thing that God touches, he then, by his own definition and, and just universally declares that everything is, good, everything is good, everything is good, everything is good. And then when he gets to the end, it is very good. So long before evil and sin and brokenness came into the world through humanity, which we saw last week, that it's humanity that brought that opened the door to evil, that opened the portal to sin and suffering and death. God's not the one who did that. Humanity did that. God was good from the very get-go. Everything he created was good. And so every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of Lights. So in trials, in temptations, hold, cling tenaciously. Do not give up on the goodness of God. Count the goodness of God. He doesn't just say that all good... All gifts are from God, but every one of them. Which means that we're supposed to look at them each individually. Not like just this big category of, yeah, there's good things in the world. But no, like, like trees are a good gift from God. And gravity. And the size of the sun. And like just all, you could just spend hours listing all of the good and generous gifts that God has given to us. The gifts of love and affection. The idea of a mother. The idea of a father. Like those were God's ideas. The beauties and the Uh, so, so, So he's calling us to not be deceived but combat the temptations by just reciting all of the good and perfect gifts that come from above. Secondly, we see in the second phrase, coming down from the Father of lights. So the source of every good and perfect thing comes from God above, and we should give thanks for that. It's coming down from the Father of lights, which I think James is saying emphatically here, is that God is all-powerful and the creator of all powers. He really is perfectly good, and he shares that goodness with the world, and he is all-powerful. He's the father of lights. This is a phrase that would speak back again to the Genesis, where he created the world, Genesis 1, 3, and 5. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Further down in Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. So this father of lights is is probably referring to God's creation of the cosmos. The stars and the moon and the sun, like God's like bigger than those things. He created the cosmos. He's all powerful. And these powerful bodies and forces in the universe, he made those. So it's speaking to his power, and his sovereignty, and this idea of like, he's not just the creator of lights, but the father. So you have this fatherly affection that God has for his creation. And God said, let there be light, the lights of the expanse of the earth and separate the light, uh, separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. I love that. That just the rest of the cosmos is just, and God just created the rest of the universe and the stars. And now as we know, as we peer further and further into space, just how big that one creative act was. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So we have this, James is telling us in our trials, don't be deceived about the goodness of God. You have evidence of it all around you. And don't ever doubt that God has created all things, that He rules all things that the biggest things that we can think of in our world the sun and the stars the lights that that govern everything in our lives God's over those and God gave the power that those have those come from him as well so God is all powerful and the creator of all powers so don't doubt that don't be deceived in your trials and in your temptations the character of God revealed in nature And in the last part of verse 17, we see that God is unchanging in His perfect goodness and His all-powerfulness. That's important. He says, and from whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So it doesn't help us a lot if God was good at some point and all-powerful at some point, but just sort of wound the clock up and let it go, right? Or somehow He changed the game on us, but He says, no, actually, what you need to cling to is that the same God who made the world with such creativity and joy and power, He has not changed. He is still good. He is still creative. He is still powerful. He hasn't lost anything. Evil didn't evil that came into the world, sin that came into the world, rebellion that's been against Him, that tragedy that you've experienced has not changed God one bit. He's not changed at all. In His goodness and His disposition to give good gifts, And he has not changed in the fact that he lacks power in any way. Whatever caught you off guard and brought evil and pain and brokenness in your life and surprised you and shocked you and you don't have answers for, well, God does. Those things didn't change him. Don't be deceived, my friends. Don't be deceived in your trials and your temptations. Because as we saw in last week, what happened was humanity changed, not God. The created world changed because humanity chose to rebel against their good God. That they believed that the knowledge of good and evil would be better than just purely a knowledge of God. And they opened up this window, they opened up this door, they corrupted themselves. And evil came into the world not because God is not good or God lacks power, but because humanity corrupted themselves. So God hasn't changed, we've changed. That's what happened in Genesis chapter 3. is that There was this deception about the goodness of God, the power of God, this, this belief that maybe God isn't all good. This belief that maybe we could be equal with God as if He's not all-powerful. We could sort of like be His rival or even His superior. And what happened was humanity changed. Their relationship with God broke. Evil entered the world. And now the consequences of that are what we're experiencing and what we're seeing. But that doesn't mean that God changed. He didn't change. There's no variation or change due to or shadow due to change, which might have, in, in reference to the lights, the idea that the phases of the moon change. Like... Every week, the moon looks different, right? Every, every, every month, the stars are in a little bit different. You know, even those great lights are changing and moving and shifting. Even the sun disappears for half the time and then comes back. Like those great lights, they change and they move, but God is immovable. God is unchanging. He is always good. He is always powerful. And he always will be regardless of what trials and temptations come upon us. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. (laughs) If I was a changing God, I would have destroyed you a long time ago. But the very fact that I've allowed humanity to continue to exist, that I've continued to preserve a people, is because I keep my promises. I am good, and I am true, and I am all-powerful, and I do not change. I do not change. Your circumstances may change. You may change. I do not change. I am good, and I am all-powerful, and I am unchanging. So, that's good. That's good when we look at that formula, right? Okay, so James is going, let's double down on those things. Let's not corrupt the character of God based on temporary circumstances. But really, like, we could, we could lay out for James going, yeah, but James, evil, evil and pain still exist. That's really nice that you're saying all these things about God. That's great. There's still a really broken, evil world. Like there's still a lot of pain in the world. James, you're very clear that God exists. Seems like you really want us to be clear on that. James, you're very clear that God has power to eliminate evil, okay? And you're very clear that God is good and desires to destroy evil, but how? How is this working out? And I think that's where verse 18 is. This is how I think, this I think is the punchline of the First section, dealing with trials and temptations. I think the punchline is right here. Verse 18, this, this, this is your resolution. This is your answer. Of his own will, meaning God, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's just take that phrase by phrase for a second. So I think this is it. I think this is is James's answer to the problem of evil. Of his own will, that indicates that it's God it is God who is acting in the world. It is God who, is, who, is, who has brought us forth. It is of His own will. So, um, it's not like in this world of evil and sin that we decided all of a sudden that we would turn ourselves back to God. No, God enacted a plan to come and get us. God brought us forth of His own will. This world was broken and sinful and spiritually dead. Every single one of us were spiritually dead. And God made a decision that I'm going to go after my people. I'm going to choose some from out of that wicked mess. He decided. We didn't choose God. He chose us. This indicates that God has both the power to pull people out of the evil mess. He can defeat evil. He can eliminate it. Of His own will, it indicates that He has both the power and the desire to address the problem. Right. So in the midst of this problem, God's not sitting back going, man, I hope they choose me. I hope they find a way out of this mess that they created. He know, but he made a decision to go, no, I hate evil and I love my people. And so I'm making a decision to bring some of them forth. What an amazing thought. So right there, that very first phrase, we see that, yes, God is all, we saw in verse 17, he is all powerful. He is all loving. He does hate evil. He does plan to over, overthrow it and eliminate evil. And he made a decision to do that. He made a decision of His own will. And then how, where did He start? Where did He start His plan to eliminate evil? Us. He brought us forth. It's the human heart that was tempted to sin and brought evil into the world. And so what God has done is He has chosen to strike back at the elimination of evil by going after human hearts. You see that? This whole world got messed up when Eve and Adam turned their hearts away from God and corrupted themselves and they died. They died spiritually. And so God goes, "You know what? I am. I am going to eliminate evil. I do hate evil, and I'm going to start exactly where the problem began, the human heart." And so I have chosen some people and I am going to give them new birth, right? He brought us forth has this idea of being born again. You've heard that phrase before, being born again. God birthed new human people. God birthed new human souls. Human rebellion is how evil and pain started in the world. And so God's solution to the problem is to start turning hearts back out. To redeem them. To free them from the evil that is in their own hearts. Ezekiel 36 says, "...moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes." and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's a mind-blowing thought. How is God going to address the problem of evil and pain? He is going to choose a people and bear them forth, give them birth. We saw in just the previous verses that sin produces death, gives birth to death. What does God give birth to? He gives birth to people delivered from evil. He brought us forth. So of His own will, God chose to do this. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. And He gave us new birth. He delivered our hearts from the penalty of sin. Well, how did He do that? He did that by the word of truth. You see that? By the word of truth. This is a reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what Ephesians 1.13 says about the word of truth. It says, He in Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So this phrase, word of truth, speaks to what God has accomplished in Christ. It's speaking about all of God's word, generally, funneling into the word of truth, the gospel, that in this broken and sinful world, God didn't just send a solution to the problem, he didn't just send a an intellectual solution, he came himself. He came as as a person, and he experienced evil and sin and trial and temptation. He stepped into the very world that was turned against him. And he lived a perfect life without sin facing all of the temptations and trials that we do and defeating every single one of them. And then went to the cross and bore the penalty and shame for all of us that did fail. That all of us that brought evil into the world that we all contributed to, Jesus on the cross bore the wrath and punishment. Sin and evil were dealt with on the cross. And then He rose again, exploding evil from within, right? Like just blowing it all up. Atoning for the sins of His people. And now that message, if people will grab hold of it by faith, they're born again. They're new. That's what John chapter 3 talks about. Um, well, let me get to, let me, let, before we go to John 3, let me read, first, or read Colossians 1 3 through 7. It says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, i.e., the gospel which has come to you, as indeed the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Colossians 4, 6 kind of puts this all together. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this good God who created in Genesis 1 a good world, and He's all-powerful, now is demonstrating His goodness and his power to a broken, evil world by, by setting his affection on people and giving them new birth by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus talks about this when in John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus comes up to him. If you have your Bibles, it would be worth turning over there. We'll read a good chunk of it. But this idea of being brought forth, being born of God, is something that Jesus actually addresses directly in, 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 uh, in John 3. So James just has this quick phrase, he brought us forth by the word of truth, and then he moves on. Well, John 3 sort of unpacks that whole thing, how God brings us forth by his own will, according to the word of truth. John 3 really unpacks that. So it's a great place to then go, what does James mean? What does the scriptures mean by, by his own will, he brought us forth according to the word of truth. John 3 is a good place to go. So let's just go ahead and read some of this, and you'll get to see some of the... Um, some of the fleshing out of what James is pointing to. James 3.1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus thinks that's a really weird thing to say. Because it is. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, we're talking about a spiritual birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can't choose the moment of your birth. You didn't choose the moment of your physical birth. And you can't decide of your own will when you'll be spiritually born. God does that. God, by His own will, He brings us forth, right? Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel and that you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you would not believe, how can you believe when I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That... Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So God is the one that brings us forth, Nicodemus. He does that. He gives us this new birth. He brings us forth spiritually. He does it by the work of Christ, also known as the word of truth. And then he's defining what that is. You need an atonement. You need the son of man to be lifted up on your behalf. Verse 16, for God so loved the world, right? God is all love that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him, born again. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be seen, clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So that's what James is getting at. The problem of evil is being overcome because God is choosing a people. He is delivering them. He is giving them new life by trusting in the gospel. By the power of the gospel, He's bringing them forth. That, this last phrase, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creation. So the problem of evil and pain is not escaping God's attention. He has desire and power to overcome evil. And he is breaking that power into the world via the new birth of people. But that new birth is not all he's going to do. It's only the first fruits. This is just the down payment of all the redemption that God is going to do in the future. So the fact that God has redeemed a people, has created Christians by the word of truth, is only like his little teaser for all the redemption that he's going to do in the world. It's just the first fruits. This is just a down payment. This is just the movie trailer to, to get you to anticipate the greater redemption that's coming. One commentator put it this way, the offering of first fruits was an annual reminder in the Old Testament that the Lord keeps his promises to his people. That God has brought them from slavery, that God has given them a homeland, that God has provided for them in in the meantime we can now easily see why James can speak of the church as the Lord's first fruits the lord brings people to the new birth to be a demonstration of all that he to all that he keeps his promises and that people who are the first fruits are especially for him and notably holy so this 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 idea that when you gave your first fruits you'd work so hard for all of these crops right and then what you would want to do is take your very first paycheck so to speak right your first paycheck we better put that away cuz we there's no guarantee for tomorrow. This idea that you take your first fruits and you entrust it all to God is this act of faith that this first fruits was a gift from God. I'm giving it back and totally dedicating it to him because I believe that he's got more for me, right? That he's going to provide for all of my needs. And I think what we can say from this passage is that this broken, sinful world with so much evil in it can have hope because there's Christians in the world. There are Christians and there are churches in the world who have been brought forth by God and they're just the movie trailer of what's still to come. There's so much more to come. You look at a Christian and you are seeing a miracle, and you're seeing God pushing back and defeating evil, and he's doing it one person at a time. And then he's gathering those people that that he has conquered the evil of their own hearts, and he is gathering them into little assemblies so that they might be light posts around the world, so that the world may know that, yes, God No, God has not abandoned us. That yes, He is good. That yes, He is loving. That yes, He is powerful. And I can see it because He's redeeming people. He's changing hearts, right? So the big question here is why does God allow so much pain and evil in the world? Why does James have to start with this problem of trials and exhort Christians to take a totally different perspective than they might naturally do it? Why? Well, one answer for why God allows so much pain and evil in the world is just, I don't know. Like, honestly, I don't know. I don't know any particular evil event that's happened in the world, why God allowed that and not. Didn't prevent that. But another bigger answer is that God is letting us live in the world that we corrupted. We're getting the consequences of our own sin. But actually, the even greater answer is this. God is good. God is all-powerful. God is unchanging. God is willing. And He is starting the work of defeating evil He is starting the work of healing every wound. He is starting the work of righting every injustice. He is starting the work of restoring every loss. And He's starting with human hearts who embrace the gospel. He's starting with you and me, is what James is saying. You can have joy in all trials because you know that God is actually starting to, this little mustard seed, it's going to grow. It's going to spread. He's dealing with the evil in your heart first. As a foreshadowing and as a first fruit of Him banishing and writing all evil in eternity. Read the end of your Bible, Genesis, or, uh, Revelation 20 and 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He's going to give the full harvest. Right now, it's just the first fruits of seeing sinners turn to God and be transformed. And then living as light in the world, that's just the beginning of the restoration that's going to come for all. So let's not be deceived and let's not doubt And what's interesting is we would love for the answer to the problem of evil to come like in a verse. Like we would love to just have like this one verse that just sort of resolves it intellectually. Or we would like some sort of experience that resolves the problem emotionally because we still hurt, right? And what we find is that the answer that God gives, according to James, is that he he answers the problem of evil incarnationally. The answer comes because he comes. And Jesus heals people effects of evil. He rights wrongs. He raises the dead. He himself in, uh, encounters and experiences tremendous evil, and then he defeats it. And so the answer comes not rationally or philosophically or even theologically as much as it comes incarnationally. God comes to us. And the answer to the problem is that God will then be with us in Revelation. And in the meantime, there's a, a group of people that are filled with his spirit that have been born of him that now hold out this hope that there is more to this world. Our God is good. He is all-powerful. And guess what? He has changed person after person after person. And that's just the first fruits of all that He is going to restore. Those of us who are born by God, by the truth, are now tasked with being the category-breaking, deception-refuting, philosophy-overwhelming, question-silencing, doubt-stopping, guarantee that evil has an expiration date. And that there is a restoration that is coming. A restoration of all that is good. A banishment that is all that is evil by a good, all-powerful, unchanging God. We're His answer. The local church and the good that it does in the world and the word of life that it holds out. That may not be the most satisfying answer. There's certainly more to think about than that. But that seems to be from James, like, hey, in the midst of trials and temptations, when you're tempted to doubt God and turn your back on Him and be deceived, just remember all of the good gifts He's brought into the world, namely you, namely you, your salvation. Your salvation. He has delivered you from your own evil heart, and He's going to deliver all of His people from this evil and broken world. Uh, uh, This book, I don't know if any of you uh, are into into ancient Russian literature, not ancient, but Look at the size of this thing. This is the Brothers Karamazov, and this is a, a Christian who's writing in Russia at a time where it's very anti-God, very nihilistic, very like, like there is no God, He's not good, like just sort of embodying this problem of evil. And this is a, a fictional story about a really wicked man who gets murdered, so it's a murder mystery. And he's got these sons, and they're just as wicked as he is, except for one. There's one that's just so different than the rest of them. Like, it's almost like he's born from somewhere else. His name is Alyosha. And as they're trying to figure out which of these brothers maybe killed their father, Ivan gives this, uh, this really long uh, discourse that's super famous, especially among those who are critical of Christianity. Ivan just talks about how God must be, must be wicked and evil. Be, and he speaks specifically of the torture and death of children. Like, just that evidence just shows us. Just shows us that God must not be good. Like, how could any glory or good come out of this? And so Alyosha is talking with his brother about this, and you just find that as the story plays out, Ivan and both his other brother, who live sort of this nihilistic, like they've just they've just turned their backs on God. They've seen too much wickedness and evil, and they just go completely insane. Everyone who turns away from from this idea of God and and this. Uh, uh, just gets totally wrecked sort of in the book. And look who's standing in the midst of all of this, doing all of this redemptive things is Alyosha. And the idea is that he's sort of speaking culturally against the Russian uh, banishment of God and resistance of Christianity and just going, hey, in the, in the end, it all leads to destruction, except for this one man. And so he, he kind of challenges them. He challenges them apolog- apologetically going, hey, the answer to the problem of evil is a transformed life, a transformed Christian life. And you just sort of have it playing out in this book of just the one, the one hope for this whole family, the one hope in all of this disaster and mess is the fact that God has birthed this new person. And He is the hope of that. So it dovetails so much with this story. This, According to this book, the problem and evil and pain is not answered intellectually or scientifically, but narratively and incarnationally. God is telling a story about He is going to come and he, is, he has sent us to be in the world and be a witness to his victory over evil. Bottom line, let me, let me just land to the plane here. Bottom line, I think that we are called in these three verses to combat the problem of evil with the reality of good. With the reality of good, that's what he's saying. The problem of evil is a real problem, but also, how do we know anything's good unless there's a good God? Right? Right? The very fact that we know what evil is speaks to the fact that there is a standard of goodness. Where does that standard come from? It comes from God. So even asking the question about the problem of evil presumes that there's a good God. So we confront the problem of evil by remembering just how much good there is. That evil is really the absence or the perversion of a good thing. Secondly, cutting loose from the revealed character of God always ends in disaster. It's just insanity. It doesn't work. That's really the whole point of this big thousand page novel is that to, rem- to move from the revealed character of God ends up causing your mind to go insane. It's a death spiral. So we must cling to God and His good character no matter how difficult it is. Third, consider the narrative and incarnational solution from Scripture. That God answers the question in the person of Christ in the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And God has left outposts of his kingdom, primarily people, people who are gathered, who have been remade, who have been delivered from evil and sin. That's his answer to the world. And as that continues to spread, it's a foreshadowing, it's a first fruits, it's a promise that God is going to deal with every evil thing. He's gonna right every wrong. And then lastly, comfort one another with gospel promises. Notice that it says, God brought us forth, which he's speaking to them in community. Like, Don't just think about the fact that God has brought you forth from evil, from sin, from death and destruction, but he's brought us together, which means there's a, there's a need for us to gather like this and speak gospel truths to each other. I don't have answers for all the specific ways that evil and trials and temptations and pain have come into the world. We don't have answers to all the specifics of what God is doing in each individual case. But what we do have is we do have a promise that this is only the first fruits of what's coming, that he is good, that he is all-powerful, he has not changed, and he will gain the victory. He will overcome and he will write, and he will walk, wash away, wipe away every one of our tears. So then what we can conclude is that if this is true, and if we can find a way to settle our hearts and help one another with these gospel truths, then we can go to va- back to verse two. And even when we don't totally understand it, we can still count it as joy when we face trials. And we can, in verse 5, ask for divine wisdom when we don't know what to do. Because we have a good God who gives good gifts and is willing to help us endure trials. And we can, like in verse 9, boast in the glory and humility of our position because we just know how temporary it is, right? In an evil world, there's just no guarantees that we're going to have a prosperous and easy life. And so we lean all the more in the fact that we have been given the new birth by a good God. Who secures his promises in verse 12 we can remain steadfast and receive the crown of life because god is willing to give it and able to give it in verse 13 we can cling to the trustworthiness of god and the untrustworthiness of our own hearts right that our doubts and our struggles is not because god has changed it's because our hearts betray us sometimes we can be tempted in trials and temptations so we need to settle ourselves on the good character of god his power his unchangeableness and remind each other regularly that God has brought forth new birth and it's only a first fruit of the good that's still coming. Let's comfort our hearts with those truths. And I would just say that if you're not a believer, then you are standing on the outside of all of these promises and these good gifts. You're standing on the, op- on the outside looking in on these good promises. So I would pray that perhaps the Lord would bring new birth to some of you today that maybe God by His own will would bring forth some of us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to begin to have hope that all of the things that we have dealt with, all the things that have been done to us will be righted in the end, that we can be forgiven of our sins, we can be freed from the evil of our own hearts, and we can be brought into a new life with all of these promises. This new birth can be ours with the hope and the promise of the full restoration of all things. There's a bunch of people in this room that just finished a training class on Christianity Explained. And so any of them would be happy to sit down with you if you want to sort of walk through... God's solution to the sin problem, God's solution to the evil problem. And He's going to apply it individually, person by person, through the receiving of the word of truth, bringing them forth by the word of truth. If you have a desire for that, you want to know more about that, we would love to talk to you about how all of those wrongs, all those evils, all those sins can be dealt with and have been dealt with by Christ. And you can be brought into this first fruits, this promise of full restoration. It can be yours through His perfect life, His atoning death, His glorious resurrection, and His coming return. You can be brought forth by the word of truth. And this will be a kind of first fruits. God has resolved and willed and guaranteed that he will reconcile the problem of evil. He will banish it all. He's starting in our own hearts and it's going to be glorious when we see the full harvest come in. Let's pray. God, thank you for these verses. And I just pray, Lord, that as we just wrestle with really the biggest question um, the, one of the biggest questions in all of human history, Lord, we thank you that your word does speak to it, and we know that there are so many more questions that this raises. But we thank you, God, that you have not abandoned us, you have not changed your plan, uh, you have not lost any power, um, you have not given up. And God, God we thank you that um, that the people in this room, the gathering of your church, is evidence that you have not surrendered to evil, that it is not going to win. And so God, help us to cling to that fact, help us to look around, help us to look at the work you've done in our own hearts to save us. Help us look out to our brothers and sisters and see how you have saved them and set our hope there, that there are answers that are coming, there are solutions that are coming, and this is only the first fruits. Lord, help us with that. I pray that each individual heart, whatever they're wrestling with, struggling with, whatever area of hurt, God, that there would be something Um, in uh, in these truths, in these verses that would be healing and hopeful and encouraging to them. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.